listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. Today, we're talking about seven Bible reasons that you will not go through the tribulation. Um, Of course, I believe in a literal tribulation. I believe that you should read the Bible literally unless there's no way to do so. Um, For example, when things are figurative in poetic speech, when we have uh, things like the wisdom books, Proverbs sometimes, um, and you have things that are maybe types and shadows or things that are um, poetic in nature, there are genres of scripture. But when you can read the Bible literally, I believe that you should. For example, um, you know, there are many people that don't believe that Jonah was actually swallowed by a large fish. They believe that that was metaphorical in nature. Uh, But Jesus referred back to it as a historical story. So I believe that the things we read in Scripture, unless there's no possible way to do so, we should read the Bible literally. Um, I believe that there actually was a flood that covered the earth, that killed men and women. I do believe uh, that these things in the Scripture took place literally. I don't believe that Jericho's walls were metaphorical and it was God giving some kind of a story about metaphorical victory. I believe these things literally happened. And so I believe, and that's how you should read the Bible. You should read it literally unless there's no other way to do so. Um, For example, in the book of Proverbs, when it says, uh, you know, talking about wisdom and personifying wisdom as though wisdom were a person. I don't believe that wisdom's a person somewhere on the earth that I have to go find. You know, if the Bible says, you know, wisdom cries out in the streets, you know, and, and begins, like it does many times in many passages, personifies wisdom. I don't believe that wisdom's a person somewhere in the world that I have to go locate in order to get wisdom. I believe we have a spirit of wisdom and that the spirit of truth, Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth, uh, who lives in us now, can lead us and guide us into all truth. And so, um, unless you can't do so, read the Bible literally, at all times. Um, I'm going to give you seven things. Now, for me, these are very, very solid biblical positions on the fact that there will be a literal rapture of the church. I love when people get on and say things like, you know, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Yes, of course I know the word rapture is not in the Bible. Um, The word Bible is not in the Bible. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. There's a lot of words that we use to describe things that are not in the Bible. Of course I get that. You people preach a rapture. The word rapture is not even in the Bible. Yes, I understand. First of all, the Bible was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew, portions in Aramaic, and the New Testament in Greek. So yes, I know that the English word rapture, uh, like that is not found in the Bible. However, There are words, like for example, in the New Testament, the Greek word harpazo um, speaks of a catching away, the catching away of the church. When it was translated into Latin, uh, the word raptura was used in the Latin manuscripts, the Latin Vulgate, and when brought over into English translations, it was translated rapture. It just means a catching away, a catching away. That's what the Bible describes uh, for the church. 
that there's coming a day when the trumpet will sound and the Bible says Jesus Christ will descend from heaven with a commanding shout, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured, caught away, snatched away, to meet him in the air, to meet him in the air. The Greek word Peter is harpazo, and that was translated into Latin as rapturo, which now in the English, rapture. So you start to see that there is the concept of what we're talking about in scripture, the catching away of the church. I do not believe that Paul was speaking figuratively. There's no reason to believe he was speaking figuratively when he describes these things to the church. That that day will come, that the trumpet will literally sound. The Bible says that the trumpet of God will be blown, that will be sounded, that Christ will descend from heaven literally, right? How do we know that? Um, the angels spoke to the disciples when Jesus ascended into heaven. If you'll remember, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, he ascended into heaven. He was blessing his disciples in the town of Bethany. And the Bible says that he began to ascend into heaven and the disciples watched him go. They watched him literally ascend into heaven. And the angel said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here gazing into heaven? For this same Jesus that you saw go is coming back again in like manner. You saw that. This same Jesus that you saw go or that is leaving now is coming back again in like manner. So the angel was saying to the disciples, the same way you saw Jesus leave is the same way he's coming back again. He ascended. And there's coming a day very soon he will descend. Uh, Paul said so. He will descend from heaven with a commanding shout and the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ will rise and those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up to meet him in the air. So he's coming back again, no question, and he'll come the way that he left. And Paul said when he does descend, people that are dead, that have all written, now watch this, it's a specific type of people that have died, right? It's the dead in Christ. It's the dead in Christ. Uh, Francine asked the question, when we die, do you instantly go to heaven or stay in the grave till Jesus comes? Your spirit man goes to heaven. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your spirit does not wait in the grave or go to some waiting place like purgatory or paradise or Abraham's bosom until Jesus comes. Your spirit man goes to heaven. Your spirit man goes to be with the Lord, Paul said. However, your physical body, your flesh suit, it stays in the grave until resurrection day. And the Bible says on that day of resurrection, your physical body will be renewed, glorified, if you will, and you'll be reunited. The dead in Christ will get up out of the grave, and those of us that are still alive will be caught up to meet him where? In the air. In the air. So we will be caught away from the earth, the Bible says. Caught away. Paul taught it very clearly. It's not figurative. It's a literal description of what's going to happen. Uh, uh, today, I want to give you, and we'll do our best to get through all seven of these, um, but it will help you. And I wish I could say that this, is, this was mine. It's, it's not mine. It, Megan McCormick, this is live. It's not pre-recorded. Um, 
I wish I could say that 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 all of the that this came from me. It's not mine. I don't take credit for these uh, the way that these seven things are laid out. Of course, they're from Scripture. But uh, a wonderful uh, man of God um, named Dr. Mark Hitchcock arranged this in this way, uh, and it'll help you to remember. And so he uses an acronym um, to to list these things. It's an acronym or an acrostic acronym. Yeah. That's what I thought. An acronym. So Ed said, Colleen asks, what happens if you're cremated? It may take just a few more seconds for God to glorify your body. <laughs> I don't think anything is going to stop God from doing. If he can raise the dead, he can bring those particles back together. Um, but I want you to put this uh, in the comments. Now, listen to me very carefully. There are three major positions on the rapture of the church for those that believe in a rapture. Not every Christian believes that there will be a rapture of the church. But for those who do, there are, there are, there are more than three, but there are three main positions on the rapture of the church. There's the pre-tribulation rapture position, which is what I believe in. There's the mid-tribulation rapture position. Those are the ones who believe that halfway through a literal seven-year tribulation, three-and-a-half-year point, the church will be raptured before the world enters into what's called the Great Tribulation. The Bible describes it that the uh, Antichrist will be given power for 42 months. 42 months. I believe that's found in Revelation chapter 13. 42 months to do what he's going to do on the earth, and some refer to that as the Great tribulation, when things get really bad. So there's a group of people who believe that the church will be raptured in the middle before the great tribulation, the last three and a half years or 42 months of that tribulation. And then there are some who believe in a post-tribulation rapture. Those are the ones who believe that after it's all said and done, then we will, as Jesus comes, we will be caught up to meet him in the air. Some call this the U-turn theory because Jesus in his second coming, they believe that it's one and the same, will be caught up to meet him, make a U-turn and return to the earth for Christ's second coming. And so I don't, and congratulations, Beverly, I'm, I'm very happy for you. Um, I do not believe in the U-turn theory. I don't believe in the mid-tribulation theory. I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture uh, theory. And why is that? Well, I'm going to give you the seven biblical reasons today uh, why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and why you can too. Um, first of all, we as believers are not appointed under wrath. So uh, as I'll show you in a moment, all of the tribulation, all seven years of the tribulation is the wrath of God being poured out on an earth that rejected Jesus Christ. Now, it's very important as I mentioned before, uh, John mentioned the book by Dr. Brown and Dr. Keener, um, Not Afraid of the Antichrist is the name of the book. Why We Left Behind Our Left Behind Theology or something like that is the subtitle. Why We Left Behind Our Left Behind Theology. Um, however, they do a very poor job of, of making a distinction between the tribulation of men by persecution and the, the wrath of God being poured out during the time of tribulation, which the book of Revelation describes in great detail. Great detail. And remember something. 
in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, when these things are being poured out on the earth, it is very important to remember that they begin in heaven. They begin in heaven. Whether you're looking at the, uh, the trumpet judgments, the scrolls, the bowls, it doesn't matter. They begin in heaven. All of them begin in heaven. They're initiated by God in heaven. It's not evil men on the earth making these things happen. It is God pouring out his wrath onto a wicked world that rejected Christ. There's a big difference between having a, a sinner or a wicked man persecute Christians for what they believe. Jesus prophesied that would happen. He said, you'll be hated all over the world for my name's sake. He said that. He told us that there would be persecutions. He told us that men would, would kill Christians, that they would uh, molest and harm and go after Christians for Jesus' name's sake. He's, the Bible teaches that clearly, that there are persecutions. And persecutions have existed for thousands of years since the church has been exi in existence. And before that, people who followed after God under the law of Moses, they reaped persecutions as well for the same thing. And so you understand that persecution's nothing new. It is nothing new. But what we're talking about during the tribulation, which is described in great detail in the book of Revelation, is not the same as wicked men persecuting Christians. It is God pouring out wrath upon the earth. It is God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. And these judgments are listed in great detail in the book of Revelation. But why do I believe that the church, the Christians, will not be here for those judgments? I'll give you seven reasons. Now, if you want to write this in your notes, um, Dr. Hitchcock uses the acronym PRE-TRIB to teach these points, these seven points. PRE-TRIB. Very helpful to remember. Each of these, you'll see, uh, is laid out to spell that word, PRE-TRIB, to help you remember these seven points. So let's go through them. I'll give you it as concisely as I can uh, so we can get through the, these seven today. Why do I believe that the church will not be on the earth during the time of the great tribulation? Why do I believe that we will be raptured into heaven with Christ before the tribulation begins? Number one is the P of pre-trib, the P, the place of, of the church during the revelation, the, in the book of Revelation. The place of the church or the position of the church in the book of Revelation. It's very interesting. Let me read this to you. None of the key New Testament passages that deal with the tribulation mention the presence of the church. Let me say that again. There are no New Testament passages that deal with the, I'm talking about the key New Testament passages that deal with the tribulation that mention the presence of the church. The primary section of the Bible that describes the tribulation period is Revelation chapter four through Revelation chapter 19. In these chapters, there's a curious silence about the church. Now think about this. In, in Revelation chapters one through three, the church is specifically mentioned 19 times. Revelation 1 through 3, the church is mentioned 19 times. And then the church is not mentioned again until Revelation 22 and verse 16. But between those two points, 
the church of Jesus Christ is absent from the biblical account of, of the tribulation. To me, that's a strong evidence that the church will not be on the earth during that time. You say, why? This is the most horrific time that the earth has ever seen, the tribulation. And if everything is as bad as the Bible describes it, why would God not give any instruction whatsoever to his church, his dearest possession, the body of Christ? Why? Think about this. I want you to think very carefully about this. When God poured out judgment in the Old Testament and, and his people were going to be around for it, what did he do? He gave them warnings and he gave them instructions about what to do, right? Think about these. Noah, God was getting ready to pour out wrath on the earth and destroy. But what did he speak to Noah to do? Build an ark, instructions, and then preach and let people know what's, what's coming. Let people know what's going to happen. Then get you and your family on the ark. Right? It was a warning. It was instructions. Why? Judgment's coming. And God's people, his followers, are not apportioned under wrath. So what did he do with Moses? He, or, or with Noah? He gave him instructions about how to be safe from judgment, put him on the ark, told him, get you and your family on the ark, and then close the door. So that not one drop of judgment. Do you realize it had never rained before? And every drop of rain was a judgment from God. All of the water that came up out of the earth was a judgment of God. God made sure not one drop touched Noah. Not one drop touched the family. Not one drop touched the animals that he was getting ready to preserve. Put them on the ark and close them in. He didn't just say, well, you'll never know when it starts and you'll just have to deal with it when it comes. No. What about Lot and his family in Sodom and Gomorrah? God was getting ready to pour out wrath on those, on those twin cities. Pour out wrath. But what did he do ahead of time? He sent two angels to go warn Lot and his family. Judgment's coming to these cities. Get out. And watch this. When they were slow in getting out of the cities, the angels took hold of them and pulled them out of those cities. That's a type of a rapture in the Old Testament. Pulled them out, ushered them quickly out of the cities. No judgment could start in Sodom and Gomorrah until they were brought out. They were God's covenant people, even in Old Testament context. The angels took them out, took them out before judgment began. What about the first Passover in Egypt? The death angel was coming from heaven. What happened there? God again gave them instructions, his covenant people. Get in the homes, put the blood of the door, on the doorpost of your homes so that when my death angel comes to bring judgment and sees the blood on your door, he said, I will pass over you and go somewhere else. He made sure judgment didn't come before they were safely inside their covenant. Did not come till they were safely inside. Are you telling me God's going to treat his Old Testament children better than the body of Christ? That's foolishness. That's absolute foolishness. I'll tell you another thing. When Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, was living in the house in the wall of Jericho, and the spies came to spy out Jericho before the siege of Jericho, and she hid them and formed a covenant with them that day. Do you know what they told her? They said, yes, judgment's coming to Jericho. We're going to destroy this city. The walls are coming down. But get your family inside your house. Hang the scarlet cord out of your window. Hang it out so that we can identify the covenant house. And when we come in, if you and your family will get in that house 
then none of those people will be touched. None of those people will be killed. Stay in the covenant house. And then notice what happened. When they came and the walls fell, they said, before we begin to destroy the city or kill the people, go get Rahab and her family and bring them back to our camp safely before we begin. That's a sign to you. God doesn't bring judgment on people he has covenant with. There was always a warning. There was always protection. There was always something ahead of time before any judgment began. Always. That's how God functions. That's how God functions. He doesn't put his covenant people through judgment. God will not leave his children to his wrath. The wrath is not for us. Think about this. Jesus took our punishment. He took our wrath on the cross of Calvary. We're not a portion under that wrath or judgment to sit here and have to go through all that when we accepted by faith Christ's sacrifice. Why would we go through it again after Christ took our punishment for us? You say, well, that's just hell, brother. It's not just hell. Why should I have to go through the same thing sinners go through when I have a redeemer? Doesn't work that way. And so the place of the church or the position of the church in the book of Revelation is eye-opening. Why would God never mention one time his church during that judgment through chapters 4 through 19? And also, if they are on the earth, why is there zero instruction like he did in the Old Testament? Why is there zero instruction of what they should do to stay safe from that judgment? Why? You think he's just going to leave us hanging during the worst time in the earth? No, he absolutely is not. That's not the whole argument, but that's the first part of the argument. The position of the church. Church is not mentioned once during those key passages of of, of tribulation in the book of Revelation. Number two is the R in pre-trib, and that stands for the removal of the restrainer. The removal of the restrainer. Paul taught this. Put that in. Number two, the removal of the restrainer. It's found in 2 Thessalonians. Um, chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians 2. There's a restrainer right now holding back the Antichrist and his powers from taking over the earth fully. It's not that the spirit of Antichrist is not in the earth. It's been here for thousands of years. It's that it can't take full control while the church is here. And if you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the Bible says, and it's describing the, the Antichrist, and it says this. Um, I'll start with verse 5. You can read the whole passage when you get a chance. But Paul says, don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? Verse 6. And you know what's holding him back. And he had just finished describing the Antichrist, the son of perdition. You know what's holding him back. For he can only be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly and will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. One translation said, till the one who is restraining it steps out of the way. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. Okay, so this is speaking of the Antichrist. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. So the question has to be, who is the restrainer? Who is the one that's holding back the spirit of Antichrist and the Antichrist himself? It has to be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why does it have to be the church? I'll give you three reasons. Number one, whoever the restrainer is has to have 
power to hold back Satan and hold back the, the Antichrist from doing his work. So whoever it is has to have the power to hold back Satan and the Antichrist. Number two, whoever that entity is must be removable, right? The restrainer will be removed, which leaves out the Holy Spirit because he's not removable. He is an omnipresent spirit. He's everywhere at once. He's omnipresent. And on top of that, the Holy Spirit will be on the earth during the tribulation because he will lead men to repentance. And the Bible says no one can be saved unless the Holy Spirit draws them to be saved. God's Spirit has to draw them. You can't just choose to be saved. The Spirit of God has to draw you to be saved. So the Holy Spirit will be on the earth during the tribulation or else no one could be saved and no one be, could be redeemed. And people will be uh, led to repentance during that time. So whoever that entity is has to be removable. And number three, the church and its mission of proclaiming the gospel is the primary instrument that the Holy Spirit uses to restrain this evil age. We're the salt of the earth and the light of the world, the Bible says. Salt holds off decay and light holds back darkness. Let me say that again. Salt holds back decay and light holds back darkness. Before there was refrigeration technology, people would cure meats, dehydrate and cure meats so they would last a long time. That's how we have things like beef jerky and salt pork in the old times. They, they would keep those meats with them when they traveled so that the meat wouldn't spoil. What was used? Salt. Salt cures meat. And you can create meat that will last a long time because of the salt content. Salt holds back decay, not forever, but it prolongs it. And light holds back darkness. We are the salt, we are the light. We are literally slowing the decay of the earth by being here, the church. We are slowing that decay. Imagine what the earth would look like if the, every Christian was just removed. It would slip immediately into decay and into darkness because there's no light here restraining it. And that's what's gonna happen when the time of the rapture takes place is the salt and the light of the earth will be removed and the earth will slip into quick decay and quick darkness. So remember something, whoever's restraining the Antichrist has to have power to, restra to restrain the devil and the Antichrist, has to be removable, and you have to understand it's our mission to restrain the devil and to bring, to hold back the darkness and the decay. So the only person that, that leaves is the church, because it's not the Holy Ghost and no other entity has power to hold back the devil except us. We're the only ones that have that power. And the Holy Ghost isn't leaving, so it's got to be us. It's got to be us. So understand that. The removal of the restrainer is proof. These things couldn't even happen. And I just gave you the logical understanding of why it must be the church. Who else could it be? Who else beside the church can hold back the restrainer? You can't remove God from the earth. You can't remove the Holy Ghost from the earth. It's got to be the church. Sinners don't have the power over the devil to hold him back. Demons aren't going to hold him back. And angels don't do the work of holding him back. It's the church. The church must be removed. Well, that's what Paul taught. It lines up with Paul, what Paul taught. Paul didn't teach that one day angels, the ministry of angels, will be taken away from the earth. No, he taught that the church would be taken away from the earth. That's the whole point. That's why 2 Thessalonians 2 is such an important uh, point to understand. He's not teaching that God's leaving. He's not teaching that angels are leaving. He's teaching that the church is leaving. 
the church is leaving. So that's number two. Number one, the position of the church in the book of Revelation. Number two, the removal of the restrainer. Number three is E, exemption from divine wrath. Exemption from divine wrath. Write it in the comments. Number three, third reason we won't be here for the tribulation. We have exemption from divine wrath. Total exemption. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verses 10 and 11a. Revelation 3, verses 10 and 11. Because you've obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. That's the words of Christ to the church in Revelation 3, right before the church is never mentioned again. Right before. And I'll tell you, it's interesting. You know, you can make a lot of, of this or you can make a little of this. It's up to, I mean, you determine it, how you want to, um, how you want to interpret this. But I will tell you that after three chapters of Revelation where the church is mentioned 19 times and then... Uh, Jesus says, you've obeyed my command to persevere. I'll protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. It's interesting to me that chapter four starts with these words. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven and the same voice I'd heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. There are people that will look at that passage and interpret and say, that is a picture of the rapture taking place. The door opens in heaven, a voice like a trumpet blast and says, come up here. Because the church is not mentioned again through all of these chapters from four to 19 until the end of the book of Revelation in the 22nd chapter. You see that again, the church is specifically mentioned. But listen to me, we have exemption from divine wrath. Paul said that. We're not appointed unto wrath. We're not appointed unto wrath. Let me just say this to you, and you can mark this in your Bible. The entire tribulation, all of it, is God's judgment of a sinful world. Even the beginning, seal judgments. The seals, the bowls, the trumpets, all three are opened by Jesus himself. Listen to Revelation 6, 1. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. You see that? It's not a devil that does it. It's not a demon that's doing it. Jesus himself is the one who breaks open the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Jesus is doing these things. Revelation 5, no one was worthy to open the scroll. Then I saw the lion of the tribe of Judah who's worthy to open It's Jesus who's initiating these things. All of the tribulation is initiated by Christ in heaven onto a sinful world. We're not sinful people. We're righteous people. We're redeemed. We're exempted from divine wrath. Amen. I told you about God's track record to remove his people before wrath. Noah, Lot and his family, uh, you know, go through all of it. Passover in Egypt, Rahab and Jericho. There's many. God removes his people before judgment. But I want you to go with me to the book of the gospel of Matthew. And I want to show you a parable that Jesus taught that will help you to understand this principle. 
Matthew 13, we're exempted from divine wrath. That's number three. Exemption from divine wrath. Go to Matthew 13, we'll start in verse 24. I want you to hear this parable of the wheat and the tares. It's a very important parable regarding these things. Listen to this. Here's another story Jesus told. And I'm reading Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. 24 through 30. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted a good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer said. Should we pull out the weeds? They asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Listen to that. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and put the wheat in the barn. Look at that. That's the kingdom of heaven, is like a farmer who planted. So who are these people? There's wheat and there's weeds. The wheat is precious to the farmer. The Bible calls God the Lord of the harvest. Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. He is the one who's looking at his field. The wheat is precious to the farmer. The weeds, listen to this now, the weeds are the ones that are growing up that are annoying the farmer. He's ready to pull them up. He said, I don't want to pull them up now. I would destroy my wheat if I pulled up the weeds right now. So let them both grow until the harvest time. And when I'm ready to harvest my wheat, we'll harvest and pull both out separate them and will burn one and put the other in the barn. It's a picture. He's letting both grow up until that time where the wheat's harvested. It's taken. It's taken. God's not going to destroy all of us at the same time. We're precious to him. We're his wheat. We're his harvest. Pray, Jesus said, to the Lord of, of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest field. For the harvest is white and ready to be reaped. Jesus' words. The harvest is white and ready to be reaped. The harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Okay. So here it is. There's weed in the field and weeds. I'm not a weed. You're not a weed. We're God's wheat. We're his harvest. And when that uh, harvest time comes, we'll be separated from the weeds. The weeds will be burnt, but the wheat will be put into the barn for the farmer, for God. So we have divine exemption from wrath. Paul taught that we are not appointed unto wrath. We are not appointed unto wrath. I'm going to give you that because um, you need to write it in your notes. That, that passage is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 that you are not, God, God has not appointed us to suffer wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not appointed us to suffer wrath. We're not weeds, we're wheat. We're not weeds, we are wheat. Hallelujah. We're not weeds, we are wheat. 
Let me give you number four. This is the T, pre-trib, the, pos the position or place of the church during the book of Revelation, the removal of the restrainer, exemption from divine wrath. Number four is T. What is T? The 24 elders. Put it in the comments. Number four, the 24 elders. Strong argument to be made for a pre-tribulation rapture because of the 24 elders. You may have never studied this in your entire life. You say, what in the world are the 24 elders? What are they? What are they? What's the point? What's the point of these 24 elders? Well, let me give you uh, some background on this. What are the 24 elders and what's the point? Okay. In the book of Revelation, there are 12 different references to a group of beings called the 24 elders. I'm sure you've heard of that term before, if you've been in church for any period of time. The 24 elders. In Revelation, there are 12 different scriptural references to a group of beings called the 24 elders. And I could give you all those references, um, but you could search it up on, on uh, Bible app or, or Google. Now, why do we believe that these represent all redeemed people? That they're not 24 literal people, but they are a representation of 24 elders representing all redeemed people in existence. Why? Here's why. Now, I, th this is, to me, irrefutable. Totally irrefutable. First of all, I'm going to give you six reasons they represent the redeemed. Number one, the number of the elders, 24. The Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament numbered in the thousands. So if you know anything about the Old Testament, the tribe of Levi were the ones God appointed to be his priests. The Levitical priesthood, they were God's priests. They worked in the temple, right? But though there were thousands and thousands of priests, since all of the priests could not worship in the temple at the same time, the priesthood was divided into 24 groups and a representative of each group served in the temple on a rotating basis. Though there were only 24 priests at the temple at all times, they represented the larger group. So the 24 men who stood in the temple at any given time, 1 Chronicles 24, the 24 men that stood in the temple at any given time Though there were only 24 of them, they represented the entire priesthood or the entire tribe of Levi, God's priests. The 24 men in the temple represented all of God's priests at any given time. Christians are called the holy priesthood, 1 Peter 2.5. We are the holy priesthood. So I believe that the 24 elders in the book of Revelation are a representation of God's entire priesthood. All of us that are Christians are a royal priesthood, a holy generation, a set-apart people. So as they did in the Old Testament, the 24 men in the temple represented all of the priesthood. I believe that the 24 elders in heaven represent all of God's holy priesthood, the, the body of Christ. That's not all, that's just point number one. Number two, this is interesting the position of those elders, the 24 elders in the book of Revelation. The Bible said that if you read it, they are seated on thrones. That's an important point. The 24 elders in, in Revelation are pictured 
seated on thrones. Now listen to me. Enthronement with Christ is only ever promised to the church, to Christians. We are the only beings other than Christ and God that are promised thrones in the entire Bible. Angels do not sit on thrones. They do not. Sinners aren't going to sit on thrones in heaven. The devil's not going to sit on a throne in heaven. Demons will not sit on a throne in heaven. So who are these beings in heaven that are seated on thrones? Revelation 3.21. They're seated on thrones. The only other beings promised thrones are Christians. We're the only ones. So it can't be anyone else. It can't be angels. It can't be demons. It can't be the devil. It can't be Jesus. He's already on a throne. It can't be, on a God. It can't be God. He's already on a throne. The only pe- people it could be are Christians seated on thrones. Number three, they're given crowns. The 24 elders are given crowns. Only church age believers are promised crowns and given at the judgment seat of Christ. Only church age believers. That's it. We're the only ones, Revelation 2.10, we're the only ones that are promised crowns. Christians. Angels are not given crowns. We're the only ones. So the 24 elders are seated, seated on thrones and they're given crowns. Could only be the church. What else? Their clothing. Look at their clothing. The Bible says the white clothing, they're wearing white clothing. The, of the elders is the clothing of the redeemed in the church age. Compare Revelation 3, 5 and verse 18 and Revelation 19, 8. Let me read you Revelation 19, 8. The Bible says, the time has come, this is verse 7, the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, his bride, his bride, has prepared herself. She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. Pure white linen to wear. Let's go to Revelation 3, verses 5 and verse 18. Listen to this, speaking of the 24 elders. Revelation 3, 5. All who are victorious will be what? Clothed in white. This is Jesus speaking to the churches. All that are victorious will be clothed in white. What about verse 18? The Bible says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that's been purified by fire, then you'll be rich. Also buy white garments from me, so you'll not be ashamed by your nakedness, and ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. Jesus speaking. Only church age believers are pictured wearing white. That's the clothing of the redeemed of the church age. Number five, what about the praises that they're singing? Go to Revelation 5. The praises, only the church can sing the song the elders sing. I want you to get this. Only the church can sing the song the elders sing in Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Listen to this. Here's the song. And they sang, as the 24 elders, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Song of redemption. Angels have not been redeemed. Angels are not redeemed. There's nobody else that sings the song of praise of redemption but the church. And then number six, 
the elders are clearly distinguished from angels in Revelation 5.11. Because then the Bible says, then I looked again, right after that song was sung. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne. So they're distinguished from angels. The 24 elders are different than angels. Who are they? The only people they could be with what I've shown you is the church age believer. That's it. Notice that they are in heaven as the first of the six seals is broken by Jesus. Because the next chapter, chapter 6 and verse 1, he breaks the first seal. So notice the 24 elders are already in heaven before Jesus breaks the first seal. They're already there. They're already in the throne room. They're already singing the song of redemption. And they couldn't be anyone else but Christians. Nobody. I just proved it to you. They've got thrones. They've got crowns. They're wearing the redeemed garments, the bride of Christ garments. There's no one else they could be but the church, the representation of the church. That's it. That is it. And they're not angels. So that's T. That's number four. The the fourth reason I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is the 24 elders, the picture of the 24 elders and who they are, what they represent. So number one, the place of the church in the book of Revelation, the removal of the restrainer, number two, exemption from divine wrath, number three, the 24 elders, number four. What about number five? Another R. It's the rapture versus the return of Christ. Put it in, number five. Rapture versus return. Rapture versus return. At the end of this broadcast today, I'm going to give you a recommendation of a book that you must get. If you're interested in this at all, you must get it for your library. The Rapture versus the Return of Christ. Rapture versus Return. What are some of these differences? Because they, they have differences. Number one, the Rapture, during the Rapture, Christ comes in the air, but at his second coming, he comes to the earth. He touches down on the earth. In the rapture, he comes in the air and we meet him in the air. In his return, he comes to the earth and touches down. In the rapture, Christ comes for his saints. But at the return, he comes with his saints. See the difference? During the rapture, he comes for his saints. At the return, he comes with his saints. He comes for his bride to claim it. He comes with his bride. The rapture is not found in the Old Testament, but the return is predicted often in the Old Testament. Now watch this. For the rapture, there are no signs for the rapture. It's a signless coming of Christ. But for the return, the second coming, there are many signs that signal the second coming. You read Matthew 24, verses 4 through 29, Jesus lists all the signs. Those aren't rapture signs. Those are second coming signs. What will, be the earth, what will the earth be like when my, during, at my second coming? Jesus gives tons of signs, but there are no signs for the rapture. He comes like a thief in the night. The rapture involves believers only, but his second return involves, or his second coming involves Israel and the Gentile nations. The Bible says the rapture will occur in a moment in the time it takes to blink an eye 
and only his own people will see him. Only his own people will see him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. But the second coming will be visible to the entire world, the Bible says. All of the world will see him come. And then finally, Christ comes as the bright and morning star for the rapture, but he comes as the son of righteousness in his second coming. So there are differences. There are definitely discrepancies and differences between the rapture of the church and the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. There are differences. They're not the same. They're not the same. They're not the same. Then finally, let me give you these, these, uh, these last two. Number six, sixth reason I believe that we will uh, be gone and out of here before the great tribulation, the tribulation takes place. And I do believe it's a literal event. I do believe it is. The Bible describes it as though it is. Number six, which is I, pre-trib, it's I, it's imminence, the doctrine of imminence. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E, imminence. Now listen very carefully to this. The doctrine of imminence. The rapture is presented in the New Testament as an event that from man's viewpoint could occur at any moment. And believers are to be looking for it all the time. All the time. And there's scripture for this. 1 Corinthians 1.7, 1 Corinthians 16.22, Philippians 3.20, Philippians 4.5, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Titus 2.13, Hebrews 9.28, Jude 1.21. There's multiple scriptures for that. We should be looking for it all the time. Only the pre-tribulation position allows for an imminent, any moment, signless coming of Christ for his own. A mid-tribulation rapture theory does not allow for that because we will see the tribulation begin and then we could just count three and a half years and know Christ is coming. We'd know right when he was coming. A post-tribulation rapture does not allow for that because all the things prophesied in the book of Revelation, we'll see them happening and then we'll know, okay, it's begun. All right, we know now at the end of seven years, Christ is coming. It does not allow for what the Bible teaches, what the apostles taught as an imminent, the doctrine of imminence. He could come at any time, be watching and waiting at any time he could come. No man knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. It doesn't allow for that because if you're halfway through the tribulation, you know when he's coming. If you're at the end of the tribulation, you know when he's coming. But we have been taught by the apostles that we are to be watching and waiting at any moment he'll come. We don't know when he's coming. He could come like a thief in the night. In the twinkling of an eye, it's going to take place and we've got to be ready at any given moment for his return. At any given moment. The, the pre-tribulation rapture position is the only one that allows us to retain the doctrine of imminence that was preached by the apostles in the New Testament. It's the only one. We preach he could come at any moment. There's no prophecies holding him back from coming. He could come right now. Christ could return now. very important. And we preach that way. We preach and tell people, live for Christ. Be ready for him to come. He could come tonight. He could come right now. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your future. Don't waste your eternity living in a life of sin, but live for Christ and expect his return at any moment. That's what we preach. And that's what the apostles preached. 
That's what the apostles preached. So that's number six, the doctrine of eminence. And then finally, the B. Let me give you the B. This is number seven. The rapture is our blessed hope. It's the blessed hope. I don't know why people say blessed. It's not a word. Blessed are the meek. It's blessed are the meek. I don't know why Christians say blessed. Maybe that's old school. <laughs> it's our blessed hope. It's, <laughs> it's our blessed hope. Paul taught that. Now listen, the truth of the rapture is that it's intended to be a comfort and a blessing to the Lord's people. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. I want you to look at that. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Listen to this now. While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the great, when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. What are we doing? Looking forward in hope. It should give us hope. The rapture, the return of Christ should give us hope. It should be, a, as Paul calls it, a blessed hope. First Thessalonians, go with me. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 18. Listen to the way Paul describes it. And, and, and remember, he's talking in this chapter specifically in context about the end times and the hope of the resurrection. He's talking about uh, you know, the Antichrist. He's talking about these different things. Live to please God. Listen now. The Bible, and I'll read you the context so you can, you can see it. Verses 15 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other with these words. It should be an encouragement when somebody preaches to you or teaches you about the rapture. It should not be something that weighs heavy on your mind and keeps you in anxiety and heaviness. Oh, the, you know, he's going to leave us here through seven years of judgment and all this. The Antichrist has taken over. People are going to be beheaded and we're going to take a mark, you know, have, be forced to take the mark of the beast or not take the mark of the beast. And was like, no, no. The rapture, the message of the Lord's coming should be something that gives you a hope to comfort one another. It's not a comfort to sit here and think about the fact that we have to be here through all of this stuff that's going to go on in the earth. It's not a comfort. It's like, oh, God's not, he's not sending Jesus until the end. We're going to sit here and try to make it through these seven years of tribulation. That's not comforting. There's a comfort that Paul talked about, that Paul wrote to Titus about, that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about, that Christ is returning. And when he comes, this, share this with other believers. Tell them about it. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage them. It's an encouragement to know that Christ is coming. It's an encouragement to know that we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and we'll be with the Lord forever. It's an encouragement to know these things. It's an encouragement. And so just to give you these seven, 
And I'm going to give you this book recommendation. You've got to get this. And then we're going to pray again at 12 noon. I want you to join me for prayer right here at 12 noon. I'll come right back on and we'll go live for prayer. Half an hour. Listen, number one, the place of the church in the book of Revelation. Number two, the removal of the restrainer in the scripture. Number three, exemption from divine wrath. Number four, the 24 elders. That alone is so mind-blowing. Number five, the rapture versus the the return of Christ. Number six, imminence, the doctrine of imminence that the apostles preached. And number seven, the blessed hope of the rapture, the blessed hope of the Lord's coming. It should give us encouragement. It should give us peace. It should give us hope. It should give us encouragement. Should give us encouragement. Now, uh, if you're wanting to go deep, if you enjoy the study of end times Bible prophecy, there's a lot of books you could get, a lot you could read. Um, the one that was in my dad's generation, kind of the standard, uh, but it's more it's more written like a textbook and laid out like a textbook, was a book called Things to Come by J. Dwight Pentecost. Things to Come. But the book I want to recommend to you is a book called The End. The End by Dr. Mark Hitchcock. It's a comprehensive study of the end times, end times Bible prophecy. Goes through each section of end time, the end times Bible prophecy timeline. It goes through um, the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, judgment, the, the millennium, the dateless future, all of those things. So it's The End by Dr. Mark, Mark Hitchcock. We put that into the, um, into the comments. But let me give you another recommendation too, because as Ben said, that it is a big book. It's, it's, he, he actually was a student of J. Dwight Pentecost that I just mentioned. And um, he wanted to write that same type of book for his generation. So he put that out. But he put out another book that's shorter that I think is a great one to have in your library if you don't have it. Um, And I want to show it to you. Same author. It's by Dr. Hitchcock. But it's called 101 Answers to the Most Frequently Asked Questions About the End Times. I'll give you the exact title. 101 Answers to the Most Asked Questions About the End Times. The most asked questions about the end times. So 101 answers. It's kind of like a reference book. And he goes through and gives you sections in that book. You can get it on Kindle or Apple Books, whatever. You can get the paperback if you want. But that book, 101 answers to the most asked questions about the end times is, is shorter, but it's written more like a reference book. So if you have a question, you jump in and say, all right, here's the section on the rapture, and he gives a bunch of questions that he answers about the rapture, a bunch that he answers about the tribulation, a bunch that he answers about the Antichrist himself. Answers all of these questions. And so it'll help you immensely. If you um, enjoy uh, the study of the end times or you have questions and you want to go deeper, I would recommend both of these books. I think they're both excellent books. I think they're both excellent books. And he has other books that are out. Can We Still Believe in a Rapture by, I believe it's Ed Hinson, if I'm right, and and Mark Hitchcock. They wrote it together. But I I believe that one's called Can We Still Believe in a Rapture? Here's the link to Amazon if you want to get that 101 uh, questions book. We put it in the comments. Um, But it'll help you. 
it'll give you clarity and it gives you plenty of scripture to look at and study and to go to what the Bible says about these things. It'll help you immensely. What I'm believing is that as we look at the future, as we look at the fact that Jesus could come at any moment, what should that do in your heart? You shouldn't sit and be afraid and be nervous and be, you know, heavy about what's going on with the spirit of Antichrist. No. What should it do for you? What should it do in you? It should put a burning fire in your spirit to reap the harvest before it's too late. It should give you a hunger to see souls saved. And that's what I'm praying for you today, that God would give you a supernatural hunger to see your loved ones, your friends saved before Jesus comes. So Lord, put that fire in every one of our spirits and put a boldness in our hearts to say what needs to be said. I ask you, Lord, put us in perfect position to accomplish your will and to see souls saved before Jesus comes. I pray that you'd open doors of opportunity for us in the mighty name of Jesus. Open those doors and let us swiftly see souls come in. You told us to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. Well, Lord, we're asking, make us laborers in Jesus' name and use us mightily. We thank you for it and we give you praise. Amen. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.